I'm Gregory Berg. This week, the studios of WGTD are closed because of the holidays. So we are dipping into the archives for some of our favorite morning show interviews from earlier in 2021. Here's one of those favorite interviews, and I hope you enjoy it. And we welcome you to the Friday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We are ending the week with a bang with what promises to be a very powerful and important conversation uh, with two gentlemen who have lived most complicated lives, to to say it very, very uh, simply. Jesse Morton and Tony McAleer have uh, each left behind uh, lives that were filled out with hatred and fear. Jesse Morton, a former recruiter for Al-Qaeda. Tony McAleer, uh, a co-founder of White Aryan Resistance. Uh, They have largely left that behind, although one of the stories they tell is of the legacy that remains in terms of their their present lives. But they are both working so hard uh, to make a better world and to help lead others uh, out of those uh, hate groups uh, into meaningful lives. And... uh, Jesse Morton is uh, one of the co-founders of a group called Parallel Networks. Tony McAleer, co-founder of the nonprofit organization Life After Hate. They both spoke at Carthage College last night in Siebert Chapel at the invitation of the religion department at Carthage College. And their faculty host, uh, Dr. Fatih Hapsi, associate professor of religion and current chair of the religion department. They are all three in our studios today, and we're going to be talking about their their stories, and the work that they are doing now. We welcome all three of you to the morning show. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Uh, Professor Hapsi, I would love to hear from you a little bit about the decision of the religion department to issue this invitation mm-hmm. uh, to these two gentlemen to, uh, to come to campus. What was behind that invitation? Uh, thanks so much, uh, Greg, for having us today. Uh, I met uh, Tony and Jesse in 2018, there was an event at Duke University. Uh, the, they were among the speakers who did talk about uh, violent extremism, hatred, and uh, radical radicalism. So that's how I met them in the first place. And I was fascinated uh, by their life stories, to be honest, and uh, f- interested about the, the, the commonalities in, in their lives. You know, they are coming from two different religious backgrounds, but uh, I saw a common ground in terms of their troubled history, the idea of belonging, this, this uh, uh, you know, the, the, the mafia type of style, style that they wanted to have. So with my friend uh, Steve, he is the regional director of the Peace Catalyst International. It is an interfaith organization. So we decided to invite uh, to, the, to Kenosha. Uh, of course, we started planning this in 2019, and the COVID happened, mm. and we had to cancel the event. Uh, and uh, and last year, uh, or in, sometime in the summer, we said that we we have to do this. We have to do this. So that's why we wanted to invite Tony and and Jesse to the Carthage College. And we're so glad that you did. And they're. Their talk last night was, I believe, titled Out of Hatred. Yes. Out of Hatred, I chose that title, again, to be specific. Uh, and we did itilize the out, you know, the purposefully saying that they did what they did in the past out of hatred. But now, uh, hopefully or almost, they are out 
of that heat. It's so living very different lives now, for certain, and trying to, in a sense, right some of the wrongs that they were part of uh, earlier in their lives. So, again, uh, Jesse Morton and Tony McAleer, no one would have thought ill of you for sleeping in this morning after uh, all you've been doing, and it's really nice of you to get up bright and early to join us here on The Morning Show. We really appreciate you you being here. And I want to mention that Tony McAleer is the author of a book he has just handed to me called The Cure for Hate a former white supremacist journey from violent extremism to radical compassion, which I really look forward to reading. So thank you for that very, thank very you. much. Uh, Jesse Morton, I, I want each of you to tell your story of how you first became kind of engulfed uh, in, in that first chapter of your life. And I know from what I have read that you believe that at least uh, some of the explanation is in the home that you grew up in, and, and in particular, uh, some of the abuse that you experienced at the hand of your mother. Tell us a, a, a bit more about the connection between that and what led you then into the life that you, uh, that you lived for a time. Well, I mean, I'll start by saying, to be clear, that everybody is accountable for their own choices in life. Many people uh, suffer through child abuse and adverse childhood experiences and don't go on to do the heinous things that I did. But we do know, uh, scientifically speaking, that there is a heavy correlation between negative outcomes in life, such as incarceration, mental health, even a decrease in life expectancy. And we're starting to explore more about the connection between early adverse childhood experiences and complex trauma and its correlation to susceptibility and engagement in violent extremism. And so now, uh, learning from how deep the early uh, susceptibility goes for me has been a process of my own personal transformation but now trying to take those learnings and apply it to others uh, I was indeed born into a household where there was severe abuse biting kicking scratching and sometimes the psychological abuse uh, the power and the control that's exerted over you by someone who's supposed to love you is severe as well and we have two needs um, in life number one is we need attachment and our earliest engagement with attachment is with our mother figure and this is the most important formulative bond that develops the personality early on. And if you don't get it, your maladaption will display in numerous ways um, where trust is, 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 is very difficult. And then the other is for authenticity and ability to be stable enough to make decisions and to cultivate a personality that is individualized. Um, when you suffer from that, you go around drifting. And long story short, after child abuse, at 15, I took off. By early 16, I was traveling around with the Grateful Dead, looking for a counterculture, looking for a group, looking for something that I could trust, but in turn not being able to get it there, finding myself using drugs in order to numb the pain like an opiate. Um, and so, uh, after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, during my first stint in incarceration, I started to explore religion uh, because it might give me a space to find the answers that I was looking for stumbled upon it uh, in an incarcerated situation, but was taught and tutored by a veteran of the Afghan-Soviet Jihad, who essentially was Al-Qaeda, uh, living in the United States before 9-11, and was radicalized. Um, and so what Islam did for me was it got me clean, it got me sober, it gave me stability, it was a beautiful way of life, but the politicized interpretation that I was told uh, I should believe in and that I was encouraged to do so uh, when 9-11 rolled around and George Bush said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, I didn't feel community connection. 
Uh, and so I gravitated towards something that could give me identity. And as an American kid that had creativity, had a level of intelligence and was embedded now over time gradually into this radical Islamism, I was quite responsible for experimenting with what we are now very concerned with, putting the, ex the message of violent extremists, then Al-Qaeda, now an array of diverse ideologies and movements, online through social media outlets um, and doing that effectively so that it could be translated into a pop culture uh, version of American uh, of, of al-Qaeda that was more appropriate for Americans and unfortunately um, did a great deal of harm and left a legacy behind uh, that now we try to combat with regard to all levels of and different divergence uh, of uh, extremism. There's two things I want to, to explore a little further. Uh, back to the beginning with the, the abuse that you suffered at the hand of your mother, I know that one of the things that you ended up doing was you went to a guidance counselor. I don't remember what level of schooling you were at that point in time, but you went to a guidance counselor who ultimately called your mother, mm -hmm. and, uh, and you suffered an even probably worse round of abuse because of that. In other words, you reached out for help, and, and that gesture exploded in your face, and and from what I understand, that really fostered in you a sense of it's me against the world. The yes. world is not there to help me. And I suspect that that's one way in which this, this early abuse really connected to your life as, as a radical extremist, mm -hmm. this, that, that reaching for help, not getting it, or, or it becoming even worse, mm -hmm. that sense of almost betrayal. Am I remembering that correctly? This is true, and it's only one example, but this is the most prominent example because it preceded me running away. So it was in high school, my sophomore year of high school. And I had already spent six months living with my grandmother because um, I had started to get into trouble and was stigmatized as this bad kid. So in a sense, because I was acting out and, like, when we see kids acting out at school when they're young, we should ask ourselves first, what causes this behavior? And it's probably something going on in the home or something that we should talk about. Instead, labeling me bad made me withdraw even more and act out even more. So mustering the courage when you're abused as a child to go to an authority figure like a guidance counselor in, high, in a high school, is, it takes a lot of courage. Mm. Uh, and so I planned it. I plotted it. I worked it out in my mind. It's going to end it. It's going to end it. It's going to end it. I told him, he called my mother in for consultation. She said he just beats his brother up on the weekends. We went home, my mother hugged me. She said she was so sorry. My sister said she thought the abuse was gonna end. She went upstairs to her room and was cried in, 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 in happy tears. And probably 48 hours after that, I got probably the worst beating of my life wow. for ever revealing the secret. Right. So. so it's, I mean, of all I've read about your story, that I think that's the moment that made me the saddest. Just yes. and I just my heart broke for you and for anybody who experiences that, where uh, they reach out for help, and in in a, in a sense, instead of getting help, it's it's help that ends up hurting the situation more. The other thing I wanted to to pursue with you is the fact that uh, you are an extremely intelligent person, and uh, although I think you had your struggles with schoolwork maybe in high school, you did extremely well in college. And uh, and it's probably important for us to understand that uh, although we might uh, make assumptions about who gravitates to these kind of extremist groups, one of the assumptions we often mistakenly make is that it's, it's people who are ignorant of the ways of the world and uh, and that is a gross simplification. And uh, in fact, you are somebody with a very keen mind who nevertheless was, was drawn to this. 
Yes, I, I think it is very important to point that out. Um, everybody in an extremist movement or group has a role in a place that they fit in. And what they get from the extremist group, no matter who they are, is they get their needs fulfilled and they get a connection to a community. Um, and so if you can't trust the society around you and you've never met anyone that has looked at you as a human and recognized the humanity in you, you can misperceive the culture of extremism as one that's fulfilling needs that you've never had fulfilled before. So once Islam gave me stability to pray five times a day, to get off the drugs and the alcohol and to process the trauma, whether regardless of the fact I wasn't really recognizing it, all of my potential started to come through. So having been a runaway without a high school diploma, I got a scholarship to undergraduate studies in New York City, went to a school, Metropolitan College of New York, got a 3.99 GPA or something like this, got scholarships to Columbia University, ran an outpatient substance abuse program for eight years in Brooklyn, New York, and had totally had this side life that was documentation of my capacity and my potential, but lived this alter ego uh, as a jihadist radicalizer and recruiter, which became more and more well-known uh, in my society as time went on. But for the longest time, I had to live two lives, um, one of which was healthy but was unfulfilling because it wasn't giving me the same sort of excitement and the same sort of community I was getting from the Salafist jihadist or the violent extremist Muslims where, who, contrary to popular belief, don't just talk about committing acts of terrorism. And Tony will tell you the same thing. There's a culture and community. There's an ideology that's more than just an I set of violent ideas. It's this notion that we're defending ourselves from a justified attack against Islam and that we are essentially David battling Goliath. And there's nothing more empowering than a narrative like that. And uh, that's what was lacking. So. Right. It, and, and it was in, incredibly powerful for you to think of yourself as a David. And a Messiah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, the, that's where the narcissism of the propagandist comes in. But absolutely. that's a whole other story. Right, <laughs> right. We have in our studios today Jesse Morton. We were just hearing from him who ultimately was a former al-Qaeda recruiter and a very effective one for a number of years. Also in our studio, Tony McAleer, a former uh, white supremacist, co-founder of White Aryan Resistance. Tony McAleer, you uh, uh, either grew up in England or British Columbia. I'm forgetting now which is which. Uh, born in England, grew up in British Columbia and Vancouver. Right. Your road to uh, this radical activity was uh, a bit different from Jesse's. I know that you did not, uh, I, I, at least I don't think you suffered the kind of abuse he did at the hand of his mother, but you nevertheless grew up in a household that was full of turmoil and uh, dysfunction. Uh, do you think that was a significant factor, or were there other things that ended up driving you in this direction? And I came from a very affluent background. My father was a psychiatrist. Mm. Uh, I suppose I would explain everything right there. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, he went to private school and had all the wants and needs. And on the outside, the you know, the family looked fine. But I, I walked in on my dad with another woman when I was 10. Oh. And I was going to all-boys Catholic school. And by the next year, my grades were plummeting. I was starting to act out. I mean, I was... You know, that was that was the day the God fell off the pedestal. Mm. You know, we we all have that experience. I think people keep telling me, "Well, I had that happen too, different circumstances." But when we realize our parents are all all altogether human and not these mm. <laughs> um, benign deities that that provide. And the solution that the school came up with in consultation with my father and and, and my mother was. Um, let beat, let's beat the grades into them. <laughs> and I ended up 
in uh, the teacher's office, you know, hands on the edge of the desk, getting hit on the, the rear end with a yardstick over and over and over and over again. And to this day, I don't think I've ever felt more powerless than I did in that that office. And I wasn't a tough kid, you know, and I'd come back, I'd come back to the class and the tough kids would come back with a smirk on their face and mm. I'd be coming back all puffy eyed mm. and having teared. And then the, you know, the added shame from the snickers of the other, the other boys and stuff. And, um, but when I, when I, when I share this, I, I just want to be clear to, to echo Jesse. Um, I don't blame anything on my childhood. Everything mm. I did, I chose to do and I have to hold myself uh, and be accountable. Um, for that. So I share this thing not as an excuse, um, but, to, but to help with understanding. And understanding is, is the foundation for healing. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's not an excuse, but maybe an explanation of sorts. And it does help us understand the lens through which I made those, made those choices. Sure. And the analogy I like to use, if you, if you, have you ever gone to the grocery store when you're really hungry? <laughs> and you know you make different choices then right you know you're and in the center poor aisles, choices yeah poor choices uh, as a young man i went out into the world emotionally hungry and i made horrific choices that damaged um a lot of people and you know i, I went from listening to elton john and queen to the clash and the sex pistols and got into the punk scene <laughs> and um and then you know came across skinheads which were terrifying uh, to me at the time and they were tough and everybody was afraid of them and they just um, but I was drawn to that mm. and my bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully become the bully and they you know my mom at the time and even later so she goes I can't understand it you know you have your whole life of opportunity and, and privilege ahead of you why are you hanging out with these guys mm. and it, it took me a while in counseling and I figured it out they had the one thing that I didn't that was toughness. Mm. One of the things you, you uh, have talked about is that this, this movement, at least in its early stages with the punk music and song, which I know very little about, uh, was not overtly racist. It was about other things, but that racism sort of gradually seeped in and became more and more of a kind of a dominant factor and certainly more and more of a dominant factor in your thinking. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, and, and oi, oi music, which is what, what skinheads listened to, which was an outcropping from punk music in the late, se- late 70s, early 80s. They, you know, they sang about drinking, going to soccer matches, and, and was you know, sort of nationalistic, jingoistic, but not overtly racism, although there was certainly elements of the skinhead scene that were racist and were flirting with the National Front. Um, but in 1983, I think it was, there was a single came out by a band called Screwdriver called White Power. And that blew, it was no longer in the background, it was in the foreground. And an entire music genre sprang forth from that. And it's like, you listen to it the first time, and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying that. Uh, and it became taboo. And, and you know, the more, the more I hung out with these guys, the more and the more hardcore we went down that road, the more notoriety, the more fear we we generated, and that was intoxicating for me. And and in order for me to have their protection, I had to have their respect. And in order to have their respect, I had to commit all the same acts of violence that they did. And 
you know, in those first couple times, and because I had, hadn't really gotten a handful of fights in elementary school and stuff like that, the thrill of it, the sense of power over another human being, you know, in polarity to that that anchor feeling of powerlessness was intoxicating. Mm. I, I remember reading that you uh, at one point called yourself at this period in your life an attention whore. Absolutely. <laughs> that was really an interesting turn of phrase, but I can understand what's what's behind it. I mean, that was also something that was fueling you. I mean, as somebody who had never been in the spotlight before, at, at least for any of the right reasons, you found it really intoxicating to be uh, somebody who would uh, achieve all of this attention and notoriety, even if it was for doing things that were often ridiculous and sometimes downright terrible. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's an old saying, um, you know, negative attention is, you, you know, if you can't get good attention from a parent, negative attention is better than indifference. Um, but, you know, the, and, but that, that speaks to the, the vulnerabilities that exist in young people through their, their life experience that make them vulnerable to recruitment. And I know because I was a recruiter uh, to, to, to join. And what the, most people believe it's the ideology that draws people in. And it's really not the primary um, thing that does. I got power when I felt powerless. Mm. I got attention when I felt invisible. And I got acceptance when I felt unlovable. Mm. And those vulnerabilities are what made me, um, and I could have joined a, a number of different things. It just it happened. It, right. It, it was that. It could have been the Audubon Society's bird watching group, perhaps, but it happened to I be. I could have been subject. captain of the football team and I would have got all those things in <laughs> right. a healthy way, but I wasn't a jock, so that right. wasn't that wasn't an option. And you know what I'm no longer with Life After Hate, but one of the letters I remember um, touched me the most and, and was profound. Um, this woman wrote us and said, My son's eighteen, he's got Asperger's syndrome. Um, he's spending a lot of time online and, and he's really got in deep with this white nationalist group online. And she said, you know, when he was 12, he invited everyone in his class in grade seven to come to his birthday party and nobody showed up. She said, what terrifies me is these people are embracing and accepting my son in a way that no one has in his entire life. And he would probably believe the earth was flat if that's what it took to get community acceptance and, and um, belonging. Right. I remember you saying that, that when you were a part of all this, if you were intrigued by such and such an ideology, you'd have to uh, probably go to the bookstore and order a book and wait three weeks for it to come. Or maybe write a letter with pencil and paper and send it off and wait for a reply to come. And now these connections could be made almost instantaneously, uh, like this young man with Asperger's uh, on the internet, and and all of this can happen so much more radically, which makes it all the more frightening. And I was active at the very dawn of the internet and actually built one of the very first white supremacist websites for resistance records to, to make that stuff available online in 1994-95. But you're absolutely right, in that time, it took months, maybe years, to fully radicalize and become immersed in the ideology. And you had to 
very, there wasn't any bookstores that had the books. You had to write away for them and hope they got through Canada Customs, you know, through the banned book list. Um, but today, with the advent of the of the internet, it it's it's days, weeks, maybe months. It doesn't take that long. And you know, if you look at you know Dylan Roof started with just that simple black on white crime search and then went down the rabbit hole the challenge today is you can you can binge watch an ideology in a weekend mm. you know your your ability to consume information is not external lines of of delivery systems and and book orders it's the your capacity to absorb information because it's it's a fire hose and you can take in as much as you want for as long as you can take it and that's the frightening uh, the frightening part to it. Frightening is the right word. Tony McAleer, a, a former co-founder of White Aryan Resistance, and also with us, Jesse Morton, who was a former Al-Qaeda recruiter. Uh, Jesse Morton, the work that you did, I know, uh, as you became uh, a more radicalized Muslim, uh, included standing outside of mosques and uh, giving speeches that criticized the what I think you were calling the soft Islam that was being preached, uh, presumably in that in that in that service. Tell us more about what you saw as the difference between soft Islam and the kind of Islam that you were embracing at that point. Yeah, I mean the strategy in that was very beneficial because most people think that online radicalization is solely about the online realm. So what we were doing was documenting real world action and then filming it strategically to show us pushing back against the sentiment that we were trying to push that the American Muslim community was hypocritical, um, and then getting that online dissemination, which reduces spatial and temporal restrictions, as Tony was describing. So there was a strategy behind it. But soft Islam, as far as we were concerned, was when we were told in the aftermath of 9-11 that bin Laden had attacked us because of our democracy and our human rights, and then he came about and said that it was actually, in fact, a result of what he considered to be our unjust foreign policy in the Middle East, and that it had nothing to do with our democracy and human rights, we felt like the chilling effect that was uh, evident inside of the American Muslim community, especially amongst the leaders with an unwillingness to talk about politics, for good reason, in retrospect, because there was a lot of uh, surveillance, investigation, there would have been a lot of criticism, uh, they would have faced severe backlash, but for us, uh, because we were willing to throw away our lives for this uh, crazed ideology that believed in killing civilians, it was an effective recruitment mechanism, because in extremism you have in-group and out-group biases which drive it, so it's you against the world, but there's also eligible in-group. Mm. Right. So inside of your community and your identity, if you are a white person or if you are a, um, a, a Muslim in general, you have to identify strands of your extremism that make you the superior one, the mm. one that's upon the truth while the rest of your eligible in-group is misguided. Right. Towards that end, I think one of the things that you were after as a recruiter, and I think sometimes you were even literally do this outside of mosques, is that you were looking for the lions and yes, leaving behind the lambs. And yes. so for you, the lions were, the, in a sense, the right kind of Muslims mm -hmm. that were absolutely true to the faith in a way that the lambs were not. Yes, I mean, in a, in, in a sense, it's a, it's, it's a good way of criticizing the lethargy and the pacifism of what we perceive to be the general consensus in the community. But to, to be honest, we didn't see the lions that we were looking for as those that were intellectual or those that had something to contribute to doing the role that we were playing. We were looking for the lions to be the ones that would act on the ideas 
uh, and motivating those that were the most deranged, actually, the useful idiots. And that, in retrospect, is the biggest damage that I did, consciously advocating for what bin Laden was telling lone wolves and leaderless resistance people to do, but doing it in a strategic way where I could not be incarcerated as a result. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to stop thinking in terms of decentralization. Extremism operates with key hubs and keynotes. And if we keep trying to extract the early entrance out and claim victory as a result of being able to build out intervention programs, we're not getting back to the root. Mm. And so basically what we do now at Parallel Networks is we try to turn around some of the faulty assumptions and to benefit from my experiences to go in and to prevent and counter violent extremism in a way that can take out those hubs and take out those nodes. And that's really difficult work. Right. And you were one of those hubs in a sense. Exactly. And right. so that's that. That's the, you take out, networks are weakest at their hubs. If you can take out a hub, you can take out a key disseminator and you can get them in a pro-social alternative network that can provide the same meaning, significance and purpose, the rest of the followers will come along. Hmm. Well, we certainly want to talk about the pathway out of hatred that each of you experienced, but my sense is that it was for very different reasons. Uh, Tony McAleer, you were uh, one of the co-founders of White Aryan Resistance and a very busy and effective recruiter on behalf of white supremacists, and then something happened that really changed everything for you, and if I understand correctly, that thing that happened was the birth of your daughter in 1991. Tell and, us about and my that. son 15, 15 months later. Right. I mean, the, the, the community, the acceptance, all of the stuff that is, that is the lure to joining these groups, it's all illusion. Mm. The, these places are so dysfunctional, and there's constant suspicion and, and jockeying for position and backstabbing. The, the, it, it's exhausting dealing with all the drama. And so I was at a place of exhaustion, but I was so tied to my identity. And the challenge is uh, white, white supremacy just wasn't what I believed. It was who I was as a person. It was what I read. It was what I watched. It was what I listened to. And I jokingly say if there was a white supremacist breakfast cereal, it would have been <laughs> what I ate every day. Mm. Um, but it, in the middle of that uh, is the birth of my, birth of my daughter and my, and my son 15 months later. And, and I... Uh, I felt I was on a very destructive path at the age of 20. I said, I'll be dead or in jail by the age of 30 as a, as a white revolutionary. And, um, but once I had children, I thought, is it, it's okay for me to be destructive with my life, but is it fair for me to do it with theirs? <coughs> Excuse me. And so I had that going in my mind and I was responsible for them. By the time they were two and four, I was a single parent raising two children and I really had to choose between one or the one or the other, and, and the, one what, life or the other is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and and how I rationalized it to preserve my ego as I as I'd, I'd gone to the Supreme Court of Canada twice and a lot of legal stuff, and it was just exhausted. And I said, why should I fight for a bunch of white people who couldn't care whether I lived or died? If I really wanted to do the right thing as a as a white supremacist, I'll make sure these two children thrive and survive. And that's how I made the pivot, but kept the ego and identity intact. But in spending that time, the further I spent away from the movement, the weaker those ties became. But with my with my children, um, they're safe to love, and mm. 
you know, f- since since I was young, I I blocked off the connection to my heart. And as human beings, um, we come into the world totally open, and life happens to us, and we go, oh, better shield that part, put mm-hmm. armor around that part, put on a mask to scare people away. Um, so I was completely disconnected and operating from ego and narcissism and all of that. But with my children, they're safe to love. They're not capable of rejection. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not capable of, uh, of shaming. And so I allowed myself to open up again and began a thawing process as I moved from my head back into connection um, with my heart. And, and looking back on it, my children provided me with, with my first taste of compassion. And I saw my humanity reflected back at me through their eyes, through the way they looked at me, hmm. when I didn't see that when I looked in a mirror. Uh, and that alienation of self, and, and that's what leads to the vulnerabilities that we're unlovable, we're weak, we're powerless, not good enough, that's toxic shame, right? And that's, that's at the root of all of this. And the antidote to toxic shame, the, if, if I believe that the level that we to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of our own internal disconnection and dehumanization. And so if our own internal dehumanization is the problem, then the answer is our rehumanization. Mm. And that's what happens through compassion. When we're compassionate with someone, we hold a mirror up and allow them to see their humanity reflected back at them when they can't see it on their own. And that's what my children did for me and, and started a road back at uh, a long road, and it was seven years after that before I started working with a counselor um, to dig deeper. And and he, the counselor was Jewish, mm. right? And and receiving that from from him, if he could learn to love me, if knowing that, who you were, knowing who I was, certainly I could learn. Uh, to love myself, and the more I've sort of worked on that path of going inward and and learning to love myself, learning to accept myself, l- connecting to my own humanity, the more I was able to connect and recognize the humanity in in others. The more I developed compassion for self, the more it gave me exponentially more the ability to be compassionate with others. And mm. you know, if we're compassionate with other people and not ourselves. It's not compassion. That's ego. Mm. And if we're compassionate with ourselves and nobody else, that's not compassion either. That's narcissism. <laughs> and we have to mine it from within if we want to give it give it to others. Right. You deserve compassion as much as anybody else does. And and, and that's a hard one. Like yeah. I didn't feel I I deserved it. But right. you know I learned along the way that that the more I have compassion, forgiveness for myself. I think mean, this is a quote from the Dalai Lama. The more I diminish my capacity mm. to do harm, the world deserves for me not to be an angry a-hole. Yeah. It's, uh, once I realized it wasn't for me, it was for the benefit of the people around me, right. then I could, I could accept it. The world is a better place. The, your community is a better place when that is the kind of person you are. I love that. Uh, Jesse Morton, your path out of this was, was very, very different from Tony's. It's not the birth of a lovely little baby daughter. Although I went through one. Oh, okay, great. Uh, the birth of my first son, and it, that still didn't stop me. So right. you should say that it's not the same trajectory for everyone. Right, clearly. right. Yes. In your case, I understand you were ultimately arrested for some of your activity. I think by that point you had fled to Morocco or arrested mm-hmm. there, yes. and uh, you were being taken back to the United States. And it was 
the compassionate gesture of one of those U.S. agents uh, in whose custody you were on that flight back, back that really started you on, 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 a, on a path away from this. Can you explain well, what I'm, that was? Yes, it, it's not the event uh, that you described, although that was a milestone marker in my ability to get to that point. So ra- de-radicalization, just like radicalization is a process, um, is also a process, not an event. Um, and my process started when, because I had to run from what was apparently a violation of the law and try to flee uh, what would be legal consequence and ended up in Morocco, where my, um, my, where my wife was from, um, I started the deradicalization process just as a simple consequence of not having to interact with the network I was engaged in mm. every day because I was on the run. Uh, huh. Tony's haphazard change into an alteration in ideology that said concentrate on family uh, vis-a-vis concentrate on the outward and projecting the ideology was not a case of de-radicalization. Mine was an unwillful disengagement. And not being surrounded by that collective consciousness, because you can't leave. Like, just, you might have thoughts even while you're in the movement of these people are crazy. Like Tony talks about the infighting and the, mm. and the, and the real incentives that drive people uh, to make choices inside of the movement. So living there in Morocco, and then hap- interestingly enough, the Arab Spring broke out while I was there. And there was all this fervor that went global for the... Um, that was what Osama bin Laden's goal was, was to remove the authoritarian dictatorships from the Middle East by attacking the far enemy because he thought that we were in control in his conspiratorial little worldview. Um, and to see it come to fruition and then to be able to engage Arab millennial youth who wanted nothing to do with fundamentalist, rigorous Islam but loved their Islamic I- or Muslim identity was a good uh, additional milestone marker. Hmm. Uh, ultimately, though, however, even after living there for a year, eventually the United States government unsealed the indictment and arranged with the Moroccan authorities to have me removed and arrested. Um, and the five months that I spent in Moroccan prison was very influential, too, because I met my first former jihadist extremist, someone that I had admired. His name is Mohamed Fazazi. He's a very famous imam. And he had changed during eight years of incarceration in Morocco and mm. talked to me a lot about life and meaning and why a person like me, an American person, would never even talked about refuting ideology, just wanted to get to know me uh, and wanted to make me understand some of his own realizations uh, uh, that he had processed while he began his own trek. And that motivated me, but I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison. Flew me back to the uh, American uh, ambit or the American landscape put me in solitary confinement uh, pending pretrial because of my capacity or ability to spread dangerous ideas uh, and spent a lot of time uh, in the law library reading Encyclopedia Britannica's great books of the Western world, reading the uh, philosophers of the Enlightenment, uh, Locke and Montesquieu and, and, and Rousseau and others, and then fell in love with um, the founding fathers of the United States revisited and reconnected to my roots. I'm actually a descendant of John Adams, hmm. um, which is interesting for me um, to explore. Fell in love with uh, Alexander Hamilton, fell in love with Thomas Paine, fell in love with James Madison, and just would go back to the cell and read scripture through a very different lens than I was told I had to in fundamentalist Islam. And that's when the opportunity finally came to meet the FBI. And I was a very different person. But they certainly didn't know that going in. And eventually, a female agent was um, compassionate enough to see that. And she kept, she literally advocated for me to work with them and would go back to her authorities and be laughed at. But one thing that those engagements did, and over time we got to do very effective work together that saved lives and created new ideas in the space, um, 
But that showed me that this idea that they're waging a war against Islam, this black and this white thinking, this idea that they're just setting up Muslims and entrapping Muslims, the stuff that I had manipulated, the very conspiratorial views that I myself believed and espoused, the world is so much more complex than that. It's so, there's so many grays between blacks and whites. And that's the milestone marker because being that she was a woman and being that I never had a bond with my mother, here was a woman that actually wanted to see good things for me and advocated for me. I had never experienced that. And, and expected them or, or imagined that they were possible. And right. even though it was a mutually rewarding relationship and at the beginning I thought it was good cop, bad cop and all those things, it didn't matter to me um, because I had changed. So for me, I was just being given a great opportunity to make amends, and it felt so good when I'd go back to the cell. And the things that we did together, though most of them cannot be discussed in public, they were really amazing because it cast this idea uh, in my head aside um, that, like, we need to look at the world with complexity. And I got back my creativity, I got back my consciousness, and I got back my connection to my country and my community. And since that time, it's been a huge struggle trying to take those grays between those blacks and whites and to paint a new canvas on top of them by taking all those energies that radicalized me and turning them in a positive pro-social direction, taking the experiences and the lessons that are learned and applying them to building out more positive networks that can call people that are susceptible to extremism, but offer them the same things that extremists do, but give them real love, real compassion, real community, real connectivity, and then back to the original conversation, true attachment and true authenticity by extracting their um, identities, merging with the group and the group think, and getting back an ability to be an individual and choose who you are and to love yourself, which again is the cornerstone of being able to project outward. If you turn inward, uh, the reflection also, in my belief, is that everything that goes on around you and everything that you attain and everything that comes to fruition outside of yourself is a direct result of the amount of work you're doing inside of yourself. Hmm. And that has been a fabulous path. And uh, I, I oftentimes reflect on Rumi's statement that the wound is the place where the light enters you. Had I not gone through all that trauma, I don't think I'd appreciate the experience that is life as much as I do now. And to be able to see, um, you know, the ability of transformation to actually occur. I'm a work in progress like everyone else, but um, it, I'm, I'm finally getting the meaning, significance, uh, and purpose that I thought the extremists would offer, um, but getting it from healthy experiences like this one here. Mm. And thank goodness for whoever that was in that prison who I believe kind of defied the specifics of what it meant oh, to be in solitary confinement definitely and did. allowed you access to that library where you encountered these life-changing ideas that, that made such a difference for you. Mm -hmm. Tony McAleer, uh, I know that one of the things that you have talked about and, and written about, and again, I'm excited to read your book, The Cure for Hate, is that this, we, have to be, we have to understand that ideology and identity often merge, and that when you are attacking somebody's ideology and trying to talk them out of it, you are, in effect, attacking their very sense of identity, which is course not going to lead to anything very effective no. you say it's not about changing minds it's about changing hearts how do I, we do that absolutely and and i get asked this question a lot like what do i say to this person you know the uncle brother or cousin whatever and i said well what's your intention if you want to be right challenge his ideology and tell him where he's wrong and give him facts he should believe so if you want to in fact change it's not what you say it's what you do and you listen and invite people. Most people have a, a, a have a grievance. 
and it's legitimate. And if it, even if it isn't, it's very real to them. Where they decide to go with that grievance can be bazonkers. But quite often they've not had the opportunity to speak it aloud to someone in a place without judgment. Mm. And that's, it's not an easy thing to do. It, it's simple but not easy. And so we can provide a space where they can express themselves without judgment. And, and listening to them doesn't validate the viewpoint. And in your engagement with them, you shouldn't um, concede any of um, any of your values. Um, the executive director for Life After Hate, Sammy Rangel, he's got this great expression, never concede, never condemn. Mm. You know, and you, you never concede your values and you never condemn um, them for theirs and, and just try and hold this space. And, and Brene Brown, who's D- Dr. Brene Brown, who's done a ton of research around vulnerability, shame, and that kind of thing. You know, when she's got a great sort of quote, I'll paraphrase, and when we allow someone to be vulnerable in a place without judgment mm-hmm. um, and they can express themselves safely, then the, the sort of the walls start to start to come down and, and you can connect to people at a, a human level. Despite all the polarization in the, in the world going on today, I still think we have far more in common than we have in difference, um, but we've just forgotten what that is. Right, and hopefully we are beginning to rediscover that again. In just a minute or so, I'm afraid, Jesse, that's all I can give you. I'd like you to explain the name of this group you helped to create called Parallel Networks. Why is it called that? Because we need to learn to think in terms of networks. Uh, It's not about individual agency, and we need to start to learn about the layers of what makes a person who they are. So what we take is a network theory-informed modality for understanding the analysis and the monitoring of extremist networks, but also how can we build a parallel network, one that can be built on antithetical principles to hate and extremism that can offer the same things that extremists offer their recruits. And we do that with public health-informed, largely trauma-informed. We've developed a modality called Trauma Encountering Violent Extremism-Informed Care um, that has led to our ability to research Uh, on over 250 effective interventions that we've done over four years of operation, but it all fits into a broader scheme. We're going to be working in Portland. We're going to be working, we're working around the country, but we've identified some really serious opportunities to test out a public health approach, which is in line with the beautiful work that the Department of Homeland Security's um, Center for Prevention uh, Partnership, CP3 they call it, um, is doing, uh, trying to explore ways to get this right. Um, ways to combat the hate and extremism that is underlying our societies and to do it effectively. And so we're honored to be a part of, of, of being able to build out some of our ideas, apply my experience and apply uh, the knowledge of science uh, and the, the, the knowledge of the realm of violent extremism all in one ambit. Very good. And uh, I encourage people to uh, Google parallel networks and seek out their really interesting network. And I hope people will also seek out uh, the organization that Tony Mackler helped to co-found, Life After Hate, which, among other things, talks about the work of some of their staff that are called exit specialists that, uh, that help those who uh, are in a place where they perhaps want to leave these networks but are find it difficult to leave behind that powerful sense of community and helping to offer them more meaningful community. And we want to tell uh, everybody again that Tony McAleer's book is called The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist's journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. 
Gentlemen, in a moment in our uh, world history when, uh, when hope is a uh, fragile commodity, I, I want to say how deeply meaningful it is to have a sense of renewed hope that, uh, that there are indeed pathways uh, out of this kind of darkness. And you have both experienced that and lived it out for yourselves and are telling your own stories so boldly and effectively. Last night at Carthage and today on The Morning Show, I'm deeply honored that you took the time to be with us today. And I wish you well in all of the good work that you are doing from here. Thank you for having us. It was an honor to be here. Thank you for having us. Tony McAleer and Jesse Morton are also with us today. Uh, uh, their faculty host at Carthage, Fatih Harpsi, Associate Professor of Religion. Thank you for being here as well. So glad we could be here uh, for the morning show here on WGTD.